But we do serve a creator God who is in authority over us as his creation and he is good to speak his laws and his statutes to us and when we obey his laws and statutes there is blessing and human flourishing that occurs because who knows a better way to live than creator God who made us and placed us in this world. So that's where we're going today, Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 8. Then we're going to go through most of chapter 18. Woohoo! Haven't finished yet in two services. Don't plan on finishing in this one either. But we're going to get through the meat of it before we uh, partake in the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus this evening. Let's pray. We'll get started. Father, I love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for something that we can believe in, go to, that never fails us, that never leaves us empty, that never disappoints us. You have spoken. Thank you, Father, that in in all the, the ways we drown in the alternative narratives in this world, that your word never returns void. You always accomplish what you set it out to do in us, through us, in our lives, in our families, in our church, in the ways, in the areas in which we live in this world. God, may we trust in your word this morning and give strength and power to it, for it is faith in your word that we need this morning. Jesus, it is in your name we pray, and everybody said... Amen. Now remember last week we walked through three different crises that God's people are now facing in the wilderness. They have left Egypt. Pharaoh pursues with his mighty army. Army on one side, Red Sea on the other. No hope, but God does what only God can do. And he parts the sea. God's people are free. And on the other side of the river, as the dead bodies of Pharaoh's army are washing on the shore. But immediately in this newfound freedom that God's people are experiencing, they're realizing that freedom comes with consequences. The first thing that happens three days after the parting of the Red Sea is They're thirsty and they can't find fresh water. Where's our barrels of water that have always been there? Oh, we're a free people now. We've got to find our own water. And they grumble and they complain, but God comes through and shows them, I'm going to take care of you. Then they get hungry. God brings manna from heaven. He shows them, even in their grumbling and complaining, I'm going to take care of you. I'm your God. You're my people. Then they get thirsty again. Three times, three crises, they grumble and complain. And God shows them that he's going to take care of them. Now we move the end of chapter 17. We put this uh, outside of the other three crises. Because this crisis is a little different than the other three. In this crisis, God's people actually have to get their hands dirty. They don't just sit back and grumble and complain and God does a work. No, this time God does a work through their efforts, through their sweat. Because what does God want for his people? He wants to eliminate the slave mentality that generations of God's people had built in their heads through 400 years of slavery. God does not want a people 
who, who maintain a victim mentality. Always grumbling, complaining, woe is me, what's going to happen? How is it? No, he wants a people who are engaged and will become determined to live and, and uh, grow in this newfound freedom that God has placed them in. So fourth crisis right here in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. This is a much different kind of crisis than God's people have been challenged by this month and a half outside of the Red Sea, on the other side of the Red Sea. And we've got to ask ourselves the question, who is Amalek and where did he come from? Where did this people, the Amalekites, come from whose name is taken from Amalek? And why do they hate God's people? Why are they going after this couple million people who have just found freedom and are, are wandering through the wilderness? Right, And our story takes us back quite far. All throughout the Old Testament, God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now here's, here's where we start. Right, God creates Adam and Eve. They become fruitful. They multiply. We all come from the same place. I know we've, we live all over the world now. Every continent is full of humanity. But we all come from the same place. Do you know where science says humanity flourished? Where it began? Right where the Bible says the Garden of Eden was. Between the Tigris and the Euphrates. In school we call it the Fertile Crescent. Or, uh, uh, well there's lots of things we call it. But the Fertile Crescent was what uh, I grew up calling it. But I love it when science corroborates with the Bible. So Adam and Eve, we all come from the same place. But then... We become very wicked. God sends a flood. He saves one family, Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth. Right? Again, one place. Why does religion look so similar in every country all over the world? Because as soon as they got out of the boat, guess what happened? God spoke and they worshiped. God's been speaking to his people from the very beginning. And when they got out of that boat, God said, go everywhere, multiply, flourish, Go all over. And you know what they did? They stood in one place and built a big city where they tried to be like God with his big tower. So God confuses their language so they can't work together and they have to begin to split off. And, and Japheth goes east where all the Asian countries come from. And, and Ham goes north, Egypt, all the, uh, the, the northern African countries come from Ham. And then Shem goes off north and west, and all the European and Scandinavian countries come from his descendants. We're all the same people coming from the same place. So who is Amalek? We learn who Amalek is in Genesis chapter 36. And we learn the history of why the Amalekites hate Israel, the sons of Jacob. Amalek is the great-grandson of a guy named Esau. Now, have you ever heard God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau? No. And why don't we hear that? Because you remember the story. If you don't know the story, Romans 9 has a great little snapshot of it. Esau and Jacob are twins. 
both born of Isaac, Isaac's son. Esau is first born. He comes out first. But Jacob is holding his heel, and he gets pulled out as Esau is being pulled out as well. Now, the firstborn in the ancient world is a big idea. It's called the, the right of the double portion. The firstborn gets double from their father what all the other siblings get. When you read about the double portion of the prophets later on in the, in the major prophets, it's that same, it's that same uh, similar idea. Double portion. I get more. Esau's birthright was to have twice as much as Jacob and the other siblings of Isaac. But what did Esau do? Does anyone remember the story? He sells his birthright to his brother Jacob for one million dollars. No, that's not right, is it? No, he sells his birthright for a bowl of soup. Isn't it amazing how hungry you can be and what you will give for a bowl of soup at a certain time in your life? But later, when it comes time, when Isaac is dying, Esau all of a sudden he cares about uh, the birth. Esau cares about the birthright again, but it's too late. It's already been given to Jacob. And so, from the very why does Amalek hate Israel? Remember, Jacob wrestles with God. His name is changed to Israel, and all his sons, the twelve tribes, become Israel. Why does uh, the the descendants of Esau hate the descendants of Jacob? Because they feel like they were shortchanged. What was owed them? These wars, so many of them are nothing more than sibling rivalries that have lasted for generations. Which when the Amalekites here, God's people, are finally free from uh, the hard time they've been having, we've got to go out and we've got to give it. We can finally avenge our father, our great-grandfather, Esau. Deuteronomy chapter 25 tells the story of how the Amalekites attacked. You know, when God says fight, there's always a reason. The Amalekites are not... Simple, easy, innocent people. No, they started the war by coming to the back of the line. Deuteronomy 25 tells us of God's people. All right, in the back of the line as they're traveling through the wilderness, it's hot out there. Who's in the back of the line? Those who are weaker, those who are uh, straggling along. So the Amalekites attack the rear and they jump out from their hiding places and they kill a bunch of people. And then they run back into the mountains for all the strong men who are up in the front of the line can get back there to help defend. So not only are these an evil, wicked, embittered, jealous people, but they're cowards at the same time. And so God doesn't say, hey, I'm going to take care of this. He tells them, you're going to have to fight, but I'm going to be with you. And so here, and by the way, when we get to this generation after generation, man, the Amalekites had to, had to be defeated as early as Genesis chapter 14. They have to be defeated again here by Joshua. They have to be defeated again by Gideon in Judges. They have to be defeated again by David in 1 Samuel. They just keep coming back, even in the time of Esther. Hey man, the antagonist in that story of Esther, for those of you who are here when we walk through that book, he was an Agagite named after Agag, who was a king of the Amalekites at one time. So this is a rivalry and a feud. This is Hatfield and McCoys on steroids. But God 
is always with his people, even though as he's making them a people, they already have enemies who are out to get them. Be not surprised, Jesus said, they hate me, they will hate you. Verse 9, so Moses said to Joshua, here's where we meet Joshua, who will be? Why is Joshua here in this story? Man, this is the breeding ground. This is the birthplace of faith in Joshua as God uses Joshua in in a mighty way in this story. Why would God do that with this young guy? Because he's going to be, when Moses closes his eyes, when Moses dies, it is Joshua who who is going to need these times and these experiences of God's faithfulness because he's going to be the next leader of Israel that leads them into the conquest of the promised land. We are seeing the seeds that God plants in Joshua so that when he's one of the 12 spies that goes into the land, 10 of them come back scared to death. And what does Joshua say? We can do this. Yeah, they're big, but I mean, God's given us the land. They're going to be bread for us. Where does that kind of faith come from? It comes from walking through experiences like this straight out of slavery and an enemy attacking and killing your people. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men. You know, I never just really thought we'd live in a world where I have to preface that word. But these are not guys wearing dresses. (sighs) Choose for us. Why? Let me ask you a question. Why? Because God created male and female, he created them equal, and it's beautiful, the the, the dignity, value, honor, and worth that men and women equally have under God as his image bears. But we are made equal but different, right? How are men different? The Bible tells us denser bones, bigger skeletal structure, right? We can build Some of us don't, but we can build bigger muscles if we worked at it. (laughs) I'm building this muscle. (laughs) I'm doing good, too. Why does God make the man a little bigger, a little stronger, so that he can defend, so that he can protect, so that he can provide? It's one of the unique things God has done with men. Even though they are equal before God with their counterparts. So God said, get men. We need protection. We need provision. We need defense. Choose for us men and go out and fight. He didn't say go out and pray for them. He said go out and they want to kill us. I don't know if you remember a general we used to call Mad Dog. But this is some great advice. And I know some of you don't like these places in the Bible where it's war and it's killing. But here's just a little good piece of advice from a military general in the modern era. When you're out on the battlefield, put a bullet in the enemy's head before they put a bullet in yours. Just saying. Go out and fight these guys who are attacking us from the rear and killing uh, our women, our children, our elderly. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill 
with the staff of God in my hand. So what's Moses' plan? He takes young Joseph and he says, find some men and go out there and fight. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go stand on that hill. (laughs) How many of you remember that? One of my favorite lines from Troy. War is young men dying and old men talking. But why does Moses say this? Is Moses trying to to get out of a responsibility? No, he's more than 80 years old. His days of hand-to-hand combat have have come to an end. If Moses goes out there, he is going to get hurt. He's now at this age in his life, he needs protection from the young, stronger men, the idealistic men, the zealous men, the men with strength. He said, I'm going to go, but I'm not just going up there to get out of the battle. I'm going to go up there and I'm going to take something with me. And what am I going to take? The staff of God. Now, when I was in Sunday school, I was always taught that Moses goes up on the mountain and prays. But prayer is not found anywhere in this text. No, he goes up on the mountain so that he can be seen by God's people with the staff of God. He holds it high for them to see. Why? Because it was that staff that struck the rock and water came. It was that staff that Moses held up at the command of God and the Red Sea parted. That staff was the visible reminder, the symbol of the, the salvation, delivering power of God over his people. And God's people on the battlefield needed to remind themselves who they are fighting for, and who is with them in their fight against their enemies. So Moses takes the staff of God. And so Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. We've met Aaron. We know he is the brother of Moses and who will become the high priest and uh, the the Aaronic priesthood will come through uh, Aaron's line. Her, we don't know much about, but Jewish tradition tells us that he is either the husband of Miriam, Moses' sister, or perhaps one of her sons. We don't know for sure, but we see him in just a little while as Moses goes up onto the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. It is her who helps Aaron build that golden calf in Moses' absence. He's also been her comes from his line, which is kind of pretty cool for all you Charlton Heston fans. Verse 11, whenever Moses held up his hand, again, what's in his hand? The staff of God, the visual reminder of the power of God to save his people when it looks like they are hopeless. When he held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. There's a pattern. When the people can see the staff of God held high, they're winning. Their faith is renewed. Their hope is renewed in their God who saves. But when Moses gets weak and when the staff comes down and is not held high, they lose heart and Amalek begins to prevail against them. Verse 12, but Moses' hands grew weary. Now let's talk about one of the greatest leaders of all time, of all Old Testament times, even secular uh, anthropologists today and sociologists say, uh, for this guy to lead that many millions of people out of slavery for 400 years through a wilderness, he's a great leader. Even great leaders get weary. Great leaders get tired. It's one of the ways that God reminds us this is about him, not us. 
We come to the end of our resources. God never runs out of resource. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, almighty. He doesn't need building blocks to do anything. From the word of his mouth, he brings forth creation. Let there be, and there is. This is the God that we serve. These examples of the weariness of men are to remind us of our own shortcomings and how we need one another in our fight to elevate and worship a mighty creator God who needs nothing, is completely self-sustaining. God doesn't need water to come out of a rock to drink. Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and they put it under him. And he sat on it. So Moses was stoned. <laughs> I had to throw that in because of the Roger Waters concert. At one point, I reached over to Briar and I was like, hey, man, do you smell that? He's like, yeah, what is that? I was like, that's marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably also the reason this sermon's so good so far. <laughs> to goo goo goo. Had to do it, sorry. Back to seriousness. Moses' hands grew weary. They took a stone, they put it under me, sat on it, while Aaron and her held up his hands, one on each side. Do you guys remember in gym class, this little number? You remember when the, the coach is like, okay, I want you to do this. You're like, this is so easy. And then like five minutes later, you're like, oh my God, I want to die. <laughs> Moses is holding up this branch, this tree branch. And he's an old man. He becomes weary. So they have to, the thing, he's buckling under the weight of his responsibility. So Aaron, they have to come, they have to help him, they have to hold his hands up so that tree, that, that rod of, that staff of God can be seen by God's people. They can be reminded of what they're doing out there on the battlefield. And so his hands with them on each side were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. And then the Lord said to Moses, and we've seen this already in the book of Exodus, write this down as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears. Joshua is out there now and it's fresh, just like the Red Sea was fresh. But three days later, you guys forgot all about the Red Sea and thought you were going to die in the wilderness. Joshua's going to forget the glory of this day. Joshua's going to forget uh, how, how God saved and delivered. Write it down. Why? 3,500 years later do we still have these 66 books, this library of God's faithfulness to his people. 39 in the old, 27 books in the New Testament because we leak. We must constantly be reminded that God always comes through. He never fails. Write this down that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven and Moses built an altar. This wasn't an altar to sacrifice. That it was an altar of memory. It was an Ebenezer that he is raising so that when they look upon the altar, they will remember the deliverance of God. They will remember the Lord is my banner. 
God is given an extended name. He's given many, Jehovah Jireh, right? There, there, there's a lot, and Jehovah's a mispronunciation, it's Yahweh. Here it's Yahweh Nisi. The Lord, God is my banner. Every military man, depending on, every military woman, depending on what branch that you might be, and there's a banner in which under you march. But for God's people, we are citizens of a, a higher kingdom, a kingdom not of this world. We are sojourners passing through to a greater kingdom. And it is Yahweh whose banner we march under. It, some of your Bibles will say Yahweh is our standard. This is what God wants his people to remember. Because more enemies are going to come. More hardships, more crises are around the corner. God wants his people to remember, man, I am over you. I am protecting you. I am the banner under which you march. I am your standard. Remember my benefits. Remember my deliverance. Remember my salvation. I have always, even in your unfaithfulness, I've been faithful to you. This is why we must write it down to remember. This is why every Sunday, you praise God, we're not on a, a battlefield spilling blood, but spiritually we are in the fight of our lives. Somebody's got to hold up the words of God, our standard, our banner in which we believe and which brings hope to us, which, which lifts our spirits, bringing faith in the God who saves again. So many times it just doesn't look like he's going to show up, does it? But he is Yahweh Nisi. He is the Lord, our banner. And we must hold up the standard for all to see. And when you see a good brother or a good sister getting weary, isn't it true in the church sometimes we just, we don't, we call ourselves a hospital, but we like to shoot our weak and our wounded instead of helping them hold their hands up and keeping the word of God visible for all to see and be encouraged by. Chapter 18, verse 1. Jethro, the Beverly Hillbillies. Uh, you remember that? Jethro, who's this guy? Out of nowhere. He's not even a Jew. Pay close attention. God's doing something here. Because the Amalekites aren't Jews. They're not of the line of Jacob. They're not part of the 12 tribes. And they come to war against Israel. But not everybody who's a non-Jew comes to war against Israel. Some come to join in the worship of Yahweh Nisi. Remember God's promise to Abraham, out of you I'm going to make a nation and all nations are going to be blessed as Jesus Christ comes from the line of David and all who will put their faith and trust in his perfect life and his death that he died in our place for our sin. All nations are truly blessed in Christ now as the nations have been grafted in to the branch of Israel, according to Romans chapter 11. This is important, and the point is clearly made, and the Jews did not miss the point. 
We don't fight against everybody who's not of the 12 tribes. Some come to join with us in celebrating the only God who's worthy of being worshipped. Jethro was uh, the priest of Midian. He was a Midianite. He was a priest in their religion. And he was also the father-in-law of Moses. And he comes to first worship, but then he has some advice that I hope we can get to in the next 16 minutes. Because doesn't everyone in this room love it when in-laws come over and give advice? So we live for that, don't we? Jethro is the one who finds Moses on the lamb running for his life from Egypt. He's the one who gives Moses a job herding his goats. He's the one who gives a daughter to Moses that he may marry and have these two sons that we read about. Zipporah, the wife, Gershom, the eldest son, Eleazar, the second son, and whom Moses has named after the trials in his life that God has brought him through. At some point during the plagues, we know Zippor was there in chapter 2. Gershom was there in chapter 2. But at some point during the, the saga and plagues in Egypt, Moses had sent them back to his father-in-law for their safety and their safekeeping. So now he is returning with Zippor and the two sons. Let's skip up to verse 6. And when he sent word to Moses... I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Watch what Moses does in 7 because this is, I mean, this is his in-law coming. This guy's not a Jew. He's even a priest of a different religion. But how does Moses, this new leader of God's people, whom God is speaking to, whom God is parting waters for, what, is, what does he do when he hears Jethro's coming? He goes out. He doesn't stay where he's at and wait for Jethro. No, he honors his father-in-law Jethro by leaving immediately and going out to meet him. And in verse 7 it says, when he finally gets to him, he bows down. This is honor and respect. Moses is showing Jethro this non-Jew. He kisses him, which in the ancient world, right, greeting one another with a kiss. It's like shaking hands today. So he's, he's bowing and he's kissing this man to show honor and respect to him. Verse 8, then they asked about each other's welfare and they went into the tent. A tent was erected and they went in to talk as was the ancient custom. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord, Yahweh, had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, and underline this, blessed be the Lord. In Hebrew, that is found three times in the Torah. Baruch Hashim. And I didn't say that completely right because I don't have that... But that's in there. Three times in the Torah, the first five books of Moses, this phrase is found, always spoken by someone who's not a Jew by birth. What is God showing his people? 
that my decree to Abraham is true. Yeah, there's going to be enemies out there that hate you, but I am going to bless all the nations as you tell them of my wondrous deeds among you. They're going to come from everywhere, and they're going to praise Yahweh Nisi, the Lord, our banner with you. Listen to what, listen to what he says, this priest of Midian. Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians down. Verse 11, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. All this other stuff that we've been doing. I know Yahweh is now greater than everything else. Listen to me carefully. We were all created by God and in his thumbprint upon us, his creation, we are made to worship Everyone in this room, you might say, Brent, you know, I have a drug problem this morning and that I was drugged here to church. I don't want to be here. I don't love your God. I'm not a Christian. I think this is all a bunch of blah, 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 and I don't worship nothing. Oh, you worship something. You may paint your face up and go to the whatever sports team. You, everybody worships something. We are worshipers. Last night at Roger Waters' concert, I thought I was at the charismatic church down the street. There's a lady in front of me. It's amazing. It's amazing. As I just looked around and observed, people, Roger's up there, blah, blah, blah. And people are just like, just like we sit in church. And mm -hmm, that's right, that's right. People are, oh, and people are, we all need a place to go and raise our hands. To, to put our hands together, to, to make a joyful noise. Everybody's worshiping something. Sometimes it's good times. Sometimes it's good feelings. Sometimes it's good music. Sometimes it's, it's something else that we like. Usually what we worship are good things that we make God things. The Bible calls that idols. But when God's people hold up his standard, when God's people remind everyone, Yahweh Nisi, the Lord is my banner. When we hold up the staff of God, when we, we, we show the visible reality of the deliverance and salvation of God, people can remember and get back to those, those ancient roots that are in us all and stop worshiping the lesser things around us and give our worship to who deserves it. Now I know because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. So this Midian priest is now making sacrifices to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And then what did they do? They sat down and they broke bread in the ancient world. This is one of the most meaningful things that people could do. They worshipped the, the Jethro heard the testimony of the greatness of God. He worshiped God. And then they sat down and they broke bread together. Just like we're fixing to do at the end of this sermon as we come to the table still. And remember the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus. Our Passover lamb that we remember his perfect blood shed so the wrath of God would pass over us. It's a beautiful end to worship sharing the bread at the table. Now we've got to hurry. The next day Moses sat to judge the people. Okay, so 
Jethro comes. He's heard this great testimony. And he has worshipped Yahweh with Moses. And they have shared a table together. And the next day, Jethro comes out of his tent. And he sees something that is not good. What does he see? He sees Moses standing and the people standing in a line all day long. They stand and they come to Moses because guess what? People are people in the past. They're people now. And they will be people until the Lord Jesus comes. If you've ever heard someone so dimly Say, if we could just get back to being like the old New Testament church. Not the church in Corinth. Not the church in Ephesus. Right? God's got things to say about these churches that are, are not good in Revelation. We all fall short in many ways. And God's people in the Old Testament are the same as his people in the New Testament. In our unfaithfulness, though, God is always faithful. What do we find God's people doing here? Grumbling with one another. Isn't it amazing how we know God's word and we know to love one another and we know to serve and be compassionate toward one another and, and put others' needs before our own and yet still we just can't seem to get along sometimes. So they're standing before Mo all day long. There's so many of them, a couple million people. They're standing there all day waiting in line. So it's like a DMV. They're cranky by the time they get to Moses. Or this, this could be more efficient. There's a better way to do this. Jethro is watching this scene unfold. He's like, this is not good. Here's the advice from the father. I'll look down at verse 17. Moses' father, from morning till evening they were doing this. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is no bueno. <laughs> it's not good for you, Moses. It's not good for the people to be standing out here like this. Oh, this isn't good for anybody. Praise God for the advice of in-laws, amen? No amens there. <laughs> I should have known better. You and the people with you will certainly, you are doing this the absolute hardest, stupidest way ever, Moses. Not only are you going to wear yourself out, everybody's going to be worn out. By this process, this thing is too heavy for you. And again, why does God put things? And again, Moses is the one writing this. One of the things that anthropologists and literary, ancient literary experts always come back to is nobody would write this the way that it's written unless it was just true. Because God's people are always shown in the wrong. If you're recording the story of your people and you want your descendants to be proud of that people, you don't write all, you don't expose all your dirty laundry. Well, Brent, if they were really honest, I, I think social media proves this experiment correctly. <laughs> Nobody puts on their laundry room with all the dirty laundry. No, happy, everything's fine. Look how great my kids are. Look how smart they are. No, we only share the positive. This is how we know. God, because Moses would never do this to himself, but he, but he does. I'm not able, it's too heavy for me. I can't do it all. 
can't do this alone. Now obey my voice, Jethro says. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Which at this moment, God is, uh, is communicating with Moses. Nothing's been written down yet. The Ten Commandments are coming and I can't wait to get there so that we can walk through how God wants to bless and flourish his people by giving them the way that is best to live our human lives. Moreover, now here, verse 21, and guys, go ahead and come up and let's begin to prepare for the sacraments. Ryan, if you'll go ahead and come up. Because as we come to the table... Right? We, we've seen God's delivering power. We're holding up our banner to stand God's very words of deliverance and salvation. As we're coming to the table, the Bible tells us the body and the blood of the Lord to examine yourselves. When Jethro is looking at Moses saying, here's the kind of people you need around you to help you do this thing. And this is good advice. It's the reason we have Elders is the reason we have deacons. It's the reason we have ministry leaders. It's the reason we have volunteers because this is too big for one person or one group of people. The Bible talks about us being a body, many parts, all together. Everybody's essential. We need each and every one of us. I was in a fraternity. We used to say the strength of the wolf is in the pack. And the strength of the pack is in the wolf. There's some truth to that in Christianity. One body, many parts. Christ is our head. Nobody, doesn't matter how strong you think they are, nobody gets to do this on their own. We need each other. And as we're examining ourselves, these are the kind of men and women we need to be. And if you find fault in yourself, as we go through this short list, and there are many lists like this in the Bible. This is not the only one. But if you find fault, this is a beautiful time to repent. God, forgive me of my shortcomings. Help me. Help me be the man you've called me to be. Help me be the woman you've called me to be. These are the kind of people you need to find, Moses. Able men. Some of your Bibles will say strong men. What does that mean? Is that just talking about physical strength? No, it's talking about people who know what God says and will not. They're strong in the truth that comes from God's word for all people in all times at all places. Strong in this banner that he is over us. Not only do they have to be strong, they have to fear God. You know what I saw yesterday? As 40,000 people shouted and ripped and roared for some old dude. There wasn't a lot of fear of God in the room. There wasn't a people, they don't, I just kept thinking, you don't even know what you're claiming. They didn't even say anything. No wisdom. Because there's no fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Everything else is just debased depravity. You can't have knowledge. You can't know truth without the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning. Knowledge is the beginning of wisdom. Strong. We know who God is and what he says. Fear of the Lord. What's the opposite of fearing God? Fearing man. 
We throw the baby out with the bathwater because we don't want to hurt somebody's feelings instead of being strong and speaking truth and love out of our fear of God. We fear Him, not other people. We don't fear the Amalekites. We fear God. Trustworthy. People, what's wrong with our institutions today? Why is it hard for all people in in most of the countries of the world to to trust in the governmental institutions around them? Because we've seen greased palms over and over and over again. People love to take bribes. Hey, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. There's a reason we have these sayings. But God wants uncompromising, unbending, unable to be bought men and women to lift up his banner, to show the world the visible representation of his salvation and his deliverance. He's the kind of people we should aspire to be. We have no idea how God is training us to be the Joshuas and the Calebs of next week and next year and 10 years from now. So as we come to the body, as we come to the blood of Christ, may we weep over our sin and may we see the forgiveness and grace of God cover us giving us new faith and new passion to be the men and women he's called us to be. 